Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. American exceptionalism. That's what we're going to talk about today on The Burt Cohen Show. You've heard the phrase American exceptionalism. You've heard the chants, we're number one, USA. Remember upon the killing of Osama bin Laden? We heard that a lot. Beyond just normal pride in our sense of nationhood, it's beyond that. It's this insistence that we are the best. We, the United States, are exceptional, and the world should recognize that and act accordingly. We're going to talk about the notion of American exceptionalism. We're going to consider what the word means, how it affects America in the world, and us, you and me, as citizens, and the ramifications for the future. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have Professor David Bromwich, who teaches English at Yale University. Uh, He writes regularly for Tom Dispatch, and he's the author, uh, most recently, of Moral Imagination and the Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, From the Sublime and Beautiful to American Independence. David Bromwich, thanks so much for being with us on The Burt Cohen Show. Good to be with you. <laughs> We've heard the words American exceptionalism quite a bit in recent years. I don't, I don't remember hearing them much before that time. Now, all has not exactly been smooth for America in recent times when it comes to uh, relations with other countries in the world. And uh, things have been rough and rocky here at home as well. Polls show many Americans agree we are on the wrong track. And I sense that there's some kind of national self-doubt going on below the surface. <laughs> and the, the, the concept of American exceptionalism is perhaps unconsciously uh, driving a need for self-assurance that we are number one. What, what do you think? Is this sense that we're on the wrong track related to the insistence on American exceptionalism? Uh, yes, I I very much uh, <clears throat> share your intuition about it. That you know, a, a free country with citizens who aren't used to lording it over others, especially uh, in their everyday lives or in their in their own travels to other countries and whatnot. That citizens of a country like this don't uh, shout for ourselves so boisterously when we're really sure of ourselves. It's just. Uh, the same sort of uh, rule of character that applies to individuals. You know, the boy who's most boastful <laughs> on the playground is not the one who's surest of his athletic skill, usually, but the one who's trying to prove something else. 
So I think that enters into it. Um, I also believe that the, uh, no, the powers of state, uh, the powers of the deep state, uh, the bureaucracy, some people call the permanent establishment in this country, have recognized in the last decade and more since 2001 that our adventures uh, in war policy toward the world haven't worked out well, and they have to keep reminding us that these are necessary and that they're part of what makes us unique, and we must project force Mm. as the exceptional power and so on. I, I, like you, uh, don't remember hearing the phrase American exceptionalism at all, really, before seven or eight years ago. Um, If you do a little homework, uh, you find that there was a book of the mid-90s written by a then-famous academic political scientist, Seymour Martin Lipset, about the ironies of American exceptionalism. His, His book was called American Exceptionalism, a Double-Edged Sword, and he meant that the, uh, the virtues of American society, uh, the self-trust, the uh, hatred of the use of state power, um, many other national traits, both worked for us and against us in constituting a society that was likely to live on and be able to reform itself. So that book was not exactly the sort of patriotic shout (laughs) that we've been talking about. Some people attribute the uh, phrase American exceptionalism to Tocqueville, Uh but if you look at his book, Democracy in America, you will not find it there. You'll Mm. find a picture of Americans as unique in the democratic civilization they are developing, and Thoreau, what a great sociological imagination, was the first of the Europeans to appreciate the newness of American society in those in those years that were indeed very free um, and very uh, wide open if you were not a slave uh, and not a woman. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to track. Uh, Tom Englehart pointed out to me an article in the Atlantic Monthly uh, <laughs> where the actual first use of the phrase may have been by Joseph Stalin, uh, uh, the uh, Soviet communist dictator in 1929 when he was uh, denouncing what he called the heresy of American exceptionalism, because the American Communist Party had told Stalin that American workers weren't ripe for revolution. They wanted reform, but there, mm-hmm. you just couldn't get a, you couldn't get a revolution on the Soviet model out of out of the American working class. And you know, Stalin, in fury, said that there could be no such thing as the heresy of American exceptionalism. He hadn't yet developed his own heresy of Russian except Soviet exceptionalism Mm -hmm. with the doctrine of socialism in one country. Um, It was socialism was still international in 1929. So that may be where the phrase actually comes from, but we've given it a whole new life and obviously quite a different meaning in the last, in the last few years where it's taken on in the popular press. Yeah. I'm just picturing how all those uh, politicians, uh, mainstream Democrat and certainly Republican who, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, strut around American exceptionalism if they understood that it came from Stalin. I wonder how they'd react. <laughs> well, yeah, but, I don't. You know, the, 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 that it came from Stalin doesn't really prove anything except no. that um, you know uh, th- th- there's a uh, there's a dislike of the exceptional and a liking for the exceptional, and they can be opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah. I mean, the whole notion of human rights is a universalist ideal, and it had a, a great. Uh, Spell of uh, a persuasive uh, 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 
existence in the, in the late 18th century, the American Revolution and the French and many other developments of sort of liberal modernity that we're taught to have some pride in come mm. out of that universalist ideal. Um, mm. Exceptionalist idealism, I suppose, you should trace back to the nationalism of the 19th century, the creation of countries like um, Germany in the 1870s and mm-hmm. Italy mm-hmm. in the same period and, and many others. All these nations, you know, have a blood and soil ideology um, mm. that uh, they feel makes them exceptionalism. And we see it in the Islamists today, where it's a nationalist, a national idea rooted in a theocratic idea. And I have to say, we also see it in the modern state of Israel. Definitely. I mean, Israel is, uh, you know, the doctrine of the chosen people yeah. uh, is an exceptionalist idea. And mm-hmm. I think that was a doctrine, this is a, a suggestion, I don't remember if it's uh, an overt um, formulation in Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, mm. but she traces modern totalitarianism back to imperialism and anti-Semitism at the end of the 19th century, and, you know, the, that the, uh, the European nationalists both hated and envied the confidence of the early Zionists in their notion of the, of the chosen people. So there are, you know, there are powerful and disturbing connections mm-hmm. uh, between, you know, envy of that kind of chosenness and then what gets done to the chosen people when they become, you know, in the eyes of um, resentful uh, uh, and uh, far from good-hearted people when they become the chosen victims. Um, but, I mean, obviously, it goes back to the roots of pretty much all the religions we know, certainly all the what are now called Abrahamic religions. But Christianity, in the teachings of the early Church, is somewhat freer of it because of its universalist ideals. Then the universalist ideals get instantiated in the Church of Rome, and you have another exceptionalist. <laughs> so. Well, and I think, you know, as we talk about people we know, you know, if, if, if we know somebody, and I'm sure, or well, maybe not, it'd be lucky not to, for pretty much everybody can think of somebody they might know, not necessarily be a friend of, who thinks of him or herself as exceptional. And you talk about, you know, the bully. And did it, I, I can't help but think that in the early days of what are now the United States, uh, we were the little guy. We didn't have any real power. I mean, going into the First World War, we were not a big player. And, you know, it seems sort of psychologically, if somebody gets a sense of, oh, everybody else thinks you're kind of inferior. Well, you puff out your chest and, you know, strut your feathers out there and, you know, insist that we are exceptional. And then how well does that work for individuals that we know? Right. Well, that's one of the things I bring out in the article that you mentioned at the start, that when you think of a, a person right. who uh, treats himself as some someone to whom the rules don't apply, right. you know that sort of person is a monster. Somebody who is exempt from the ordinary uh, sorts of self-restraint that make a decent social life, a decent society uh, possible. Um, about America in its early days, yes, we were not only um, a smaller power than. Uh, England, you know, France, certainly. the Dutch, uh, the uh, Spanish, uh, the English uh, Empire, and uh, the French, at least at the height of Napoleon's powers, 
but we were uh, we were anti-imperial. Um, right. The United States had been formed in uh, resistance to empire, mm-hmm. and the doctrine you find laid down, for example, uh, in many of the Federalist Papers, but also in uh, George Washington's farewell address, is of conscious wariness of arbitrary and singular attachments to other countries. Don't get involved in the old world's greedy quest for power and for imperial reach. The United States is just the country, as uh, Washington defined it, that ought to be free of that. And that, uh, uh, let's, let's call it um, <laughs> healthy-minded resistance to empire, goes mm. on well into... Uh, oh. Well, into the 19th century, I mean, I, I just was trying to isolate some quotations. Um, well, when I was growing up in the 1950s, I got the impression that, that one of the things that that I felt proud of to be an American is that we weren't imperialist. And and as I recall, in, in striving for independence from, from France, uh, Ho Chi Minh also saw that in the United States, that we were not at our roots, uh, 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 an imperialist nation that we not, were... Not at root, not in our ideology. And, and you're right, you've got your finger on something, um, one can put it precisely uh, there, that uh, um, whatever we did, and in the 1950s when you and I were growing up, the United States wasn't, uh, you know, full of um, gesticulations of imperial reach <laughs> towards uh, the Arab world and not towards... Um, uh, Europe, which we'd already got the Western part of to our satisfaction, we were imperialists towards Latin America in very notable ways, and that's something we weren't taught about in school. But the ideology, the spoken ideals of the United States were not imperialist, were anti-imperialist, and in fact, that was what we charged against the Soviet Union, that in Eastern Europe, in Africa, and elsewhere, they made the overt gestures of an empire. Um, And I think this anti-imperialist stance, like the the best... um, text for it is, is, you know, comes close to the Monroe Doctrine, where the U.S. is first asserting it has its own sphere of influence, but not quite an imperial sphere. Mm. And it's from a July 4th oration by um, uh, John Quincy Adams. Do you, do you mind if I read just a No, bit please of it? do. That sounds fascinating. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a well-known passage, but not everybody uh, will know it, and it's wonderful to hear. So Adams, then Secretary of State under Monroe, um, tells his audience on the 4th of July, 1821, that wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, the heart of America, her benedictions and her prayers be, but she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Hmm. So we root for the people who are achieving their own freedom, but we don't do it with arms, and we don't do it uh, by sending ships to prove that we're rooting for them. She, America, is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will commend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example. And that's an idea I think one could still find very attractive, that we're not an evangelical, expansive power, but an exemplary one, or at least try to be. What's good about our way of freedom, we're going to show by the way of life you can see in America, but not by sending it abroad and supporting it with arms. And that's, that um, speech uh, 
comes to a sort of climax where he says uh, that if the United States began to expand in that way, she would involve herself beyond her power of extraction in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom, the fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force, mm. and then this last bit, she might become the dictatress of the world, she would be no longer the ruler of her own spirit. And that's what I find wow. scary about the new ideology of exceptionalism that you began by describing, that we're uh, in danger of no longer being the ruler of our own spirit. I mean, the, the, the imperialist means that are used abroad come back home, for example, in the program of mass surveillance. Wow. Uh, it, it makes me, I don't often talk about my feelings on this, but it makes me sad. That's, that's the America I grew up believing in. The, the, you were quoting from John Quincy Adams, and that, you know, there are other, lots of other nations that are true to themselves, that are certainly not imperialist, have no imperial uh, designs on the rest of the world, don't think of themselves ex as exceptional. But, boy, that, that being anti-imperial and being reliably anti-imperial, uh, you know, for a big nation, a big powerful nation, that would have been... <laughs> pretty exceptional, but to boast... It's been unheard of, indeed. And laugh, it did not happen. <laughs> no, no, it did not happen. If you just tuned into the Burt Cohen Show, our guest today is David Bromwich. We're talking about uh, an essay uh, he wrote on Tom Dispatch about uh, American exceptionalism. And uh, let's see. Um, what about, you know, you were talking about uh, Uncle Joe before, Joe Stalin. Uh, we have not had a class consciousness, basically. I think w what the American communists were trying to communicate to, to Stalin was that, you know, it, we don't have this uh, sense of, of working class versus the aristocracy. Right. I, I think it's frankly gotten a heck of a lot worse in terms of where the money is in America these yes, days. Yes, that it's, can be proved. <laughs> uh, un, it's unthinkable, but it's real. But, you know, certainly throughout the 20th century, there has not been a sense of class consciousness. Right. And that there was a sense of message that was brought home again and again by yes. the so-called consensus historians of the 1950s, Richard Hofstetter, John Morton Blum, Arthur Schlesinger, many others, and Seymour Martin Lipset, who wrote the book on American exceptionalism I mentioned uh, a while ago. Uh, Lipset was writing very much in the same um, train of thought that, uh, you know, the exceptional trait they were struck by in American society, which they may be uh, exaggerated, but certainly there, is that Americans kind of cherish, we, we, we care to persist in, <laughs> a sentiment of equality, uh, whether the facts of equality um, support the sentiment or not. And there may be something very good about that. That is to say, there's, un there's unusually little resentment, which is the worst aspect of class consciousness in the United States. Resentment may be of other kinds, but it is not, it's not resentment of property, it's not resentment of the, you know, the um, glories or goods that come with achievement and whatnot. Um, I mean, the sort of um, doctrine about excellence <laughs> that we're all taught, and that was, that was all the rage in the 70s, I seem to remember. Um, you know, this idea of excellence is very egalitarian under the surface. 
anybody can strive to excel mm-hmm. and and then excel. So yeah. um, that you know that is a genuinely um, unusual aspect of our society, and I don't think it can be exported. And the wisest statesmen and thinkers about America um, have been against uh, trying to export it. It comes from the fact that uh, the United States is to such a great extent constituted by immigrants. And only the first big wave were Anglo-Saxons. And there were people here before the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, the, it's the most mixed society as to race and ethnic background that the world has ever seen. And in some way that has gone with the feeling that any American can talk to any other American. That's very good, but what implications does it have for world policy? Right. Probably none. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I mean, it, it, to follow that line of, of thinking, wouldn't it be the case uh, to carry that on that, that we don't want to dominate, that, that we are not superior, you know, that we are not going to tell you, the other nations, what to do and how to live. But instead, and, and a lot of people these days, especially on the right, which is pretty far to the right, uh, I mean, it's like the John Birch Society is the Republican Party now, at least some of us remember the John Birch Society, um, you know, believing that there's something really unique about America that was given to us by God, by destiny, by providence that we landed. Right. You know, we, the, the uh, Protestant white male settlers, uh, landed in this empty nation, and that you know they they really really believe that that is of our nature. It's not something we've had to achieve. That we are a godly nation by our nature. Right. And there was a and that that element is there, and it brings us, It should give us some irony. Uh, as some distance on our own revulsion from the theocratic idealism of the uh, Islamist terrorists that we see halfway around the world uh, now and whose wars, whose sectarian wars, we somehow think we should enter into. Um, the Puritan idealism of the radical Protestants who founded this country um, was the idealism of a chosen people. They modeled themselves on the ancient Hebrews, on the Book of Kings as much as on anything in the Gospels. And, um, you know, like the Puritans of Britain in the uh, 17th century, I mean, the, Amer- the difference of the Americans was that they had preferred not to fight the English Civil War over it. They came here instead, but they believed they were chosen by God. And that sort of idealism is still alive among American evangelicals, who are a huge force in American politics, I would even say, in the southernization of American politics over the last 50 years because of their preponderance in the American South. And, um, uh, you know, Reagan spoke for that idealism uh, in his many allusions to the phrase from John Winthrop about being a shining city on a hill. Um, We are the shining city on a hill. Now, Reagan was one of the less religiously observant uh, of our presidents. He was no more attentive to that as a churchgoer than, say, Eisenhower was, uh, much less than Clinton and Jimmy Carter, uh, Carter above all, who was quite religious. Nevertheless, Reagan invoked this specifically Protestant religious ideal to build up his notions of American nationalism. And I think one might go to that for another source of our recent attachment to the word exceptionalism, uh, the, the city on a hill, image from Reagan has been quoted ever since 1980 
and um, uh, it it seems to say we're a beacon, uh, but also everybody'd like to live in that city, and so maybe that city should make other cities like itself. Right. Yeah, and that's called imperialism. Surprise, surprise. It has certainly been the case. Now, there's not always, but oftentimes, national pride. I, I sense, you know, psychologically, sociologically, most humans need a sense of belonging, you know, sort of a, a, a carry forward of, of a sense of tribe. How is the notion of American exceptionalism different from you know, this need for belonging, need for national pride. Is it qualitatively different from that? Uh, that's a hard question. It's, it's, it's like trying to draw the line between thought and feeling on the one hand and action supported by thought and feeling on the other. I mean, the, the feeling of pride you're talking about, am I right to think you're, you have in mind loyalty, for example, sure. sort of a, the arbitrary good feeling that you get by being loyal to a certain organization or group of people. You have pride in a team. And, you know, if it's a game that the team is playing, then uh, there's uh, a limit uh, to the, you know, (laughs) uh, moral wrongs (laughs) that loyalty might lead you into committing. If you're a loyalist of a hockey team, uh, you might get involved in one of their regular brawls during a match or after a match, uh, same with soccer, only worse. It happens in stadiums instead of rinks. Um, but if you're a country um, and you're treating yourself like a team, but the games are actually wars, uh, then something has gone very wrong with the ideal of loyalty. Uh, and, and loyalty, and this is something one has to stress occasionally, with young people and, I don't know, even friends and neighbors who should know better, yeah. um, Loyalty is not a moral virtue. Uh, it's a non-moral strength. It has nothing to do with right and wrong. The quality of loyalty is that it does not have to be earned. Trust has to be earned. And that's why the word trust is used so much uh, in the founding documents of the United States. Trust in the governors by the people has to be earned by those who govern. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a lot of confusions involved in our recent mood, and I, I think you'll find actually, uh, that the fault has been committed almost as much by Obama as it was by George W. Bush to equate earned trust with sort of automatic loyalty, the loyalty we owe to ourselves um, just as a team. Interesting. the, The idea of team spirit, the corruption of the idea of team spirit, has something to do with what's wrong. Uh, with exceptionalism. And you talk about teams and sports and uh, being up here in uh, Red Sox Nation when, you know, there's pride in the Red Sox. And when I hear, you know, people yell, Yankees suck, well, what happens to reality when they beat the Red Sox? You know, yeah. <laughs> you, you got to recognize reality every now and then. Uh, if you just turned into the Burt Cohen Show, our guest today is David Bromwich. We're talking about uh, an article he wrote on Tom Dispatch about American exceptionalism. Now, our founders, very wise people, it seems to me, who offered differed on things, but it seems to me that at least many of them often spoke about the requirement to foster and maintain what they called virtue. Does a belief in American exceptionalism assume that virtue comes without work, that it is intrinsic, and that it doesn't need to be taught and strived for, and that we just are born into the world with this special virtue. What about 
you don't hear about virtue very often, but they seem to say to me anyway that you got to strive for virtue because otherwise. Well, virtue is an. It's interesting. Virtue is an older word, and it's not. It's not a. It's not a Christian word. Uh, it's Roman. It comes from virtu. Uh, it's connected with ideas of manliness, and partly for that reason, uh, you you do find the word leading a pretty active and healthy life. Um among conservatives on the American right, and especially moral and cultural conservatives. There's a lot of talk about virtue, going back to the virtues among them. The word more favored by left liberal people tends to be values, and you'll probably hear Senate, Senate uh, characters <laughs> in the Democratic Party, the president too, talking about values much more than about virtues. But in current usage, they really are uh, synonymous, and they they come down to you know intending something about standards of good behavior, but but of good behavior that uh, that has to be uh, cultivated. Now, for for a whole country to exemplify uh, a pattern of good behavior, to want to be admirable for others um, by dint of good behavior. Uh, again, that's been sort of an exemplary ideal of some Americans. I think you find it as a hope in the early documents like the Federalist Papers. I mean, the best uh, statement of that idea of the uh, exemplariness of our virtues, and particularly our belief in and practice of equality, I think came from Abraham Lincoln in a speech he made uh, before uh, becoming president. It's his speech against the Dred Scott decision uh, in 1857. That's the Supreme Court decision that ruled in the uh, opinion of Chief Justice Tawney uh, that uh, a Negro uh, was not intended to be included uh, in the Constitution of the United States by the framers and couldn't, not only was not a citizen, but never could become a citizen. I was a very radical uh, anti-libertarian uh, ruling, and Lincoln, you know, went back as he often did uh, in these uh, moods of resistance to the phrases from the Declaration of Independence that he thought were the core of American doctrine about liberty and equality, and especially uh, the phrase "all men are created equal." What did they mean by that? Lincoln asked, and he says in this speech, "They, people who signed the Declaration." did not mean to assert the obvious untruth that all were then actually enjoying that equality or that they were about to confer it immediately upon them. In fact, they had no power to confer such a boon. They meant simply to declare the right so that the enforcement of it, of it might follow as fast as circumstances permit. And then he says this about the exemplary nature of that belief. They meant to set up a standard maxim for free society, which should be familiar to all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. It's a wonderful statement. It's a wonderful statement. But does that contemplate an extended empire of liberty and freedom? I don't think so. Mm. And I think that's why, why Lincoln said that the founders intended to set up a standard maxim for free society. Think along these universalist lines about equality and liberty, and you may arrive at the point we're hoping to arrive at now. 
But Lincoln, of course, in 1857, resisting a racist decision by the Supreme Court, was not pretending that the United States was yet the society that the framers had envisaged. <laughs> right, and, and you write that uh, Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address, an incredible piece of, of prose, suggested that, quote, the tarnished virtue of the past will be scoured clean by the purity of the future, unquote. And it, you know, it sounds like underneath what you were saying just a minute ago and what he was saying in his Gettysburg Address here, that there is a potential for real American exceptionalism, for something in the future that, you know, it was like this something was held up as a possibility that, that we could really be uh, exceptional. Comments on that Gettysburg Address, that phrase that, that I just mentioned there. Yeah, I think keeping, keeping the, the visionary... <laughs> Keeping the visionary end properly in the future is a very good discipline against the arrogance of exceptionalism. Um, but, you know, I would say even, even to think particularistically about what it is that you are going to have achieved when you get into that future is a danger. Just think of it as a human hope, and you, your society, mm-hmm. represents one embodiment of that hope. Um, you know, uh, uh, well... I'll finish that thought some other time. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I wonder, you know, that I think about uh, what, you know, American boastfulness and, and uh, macho has gotten us into, you know, and belief that this, that we are God's gift to the world. Uh, there was something called Vietnam. And uh, right around 1970, it's 1967, I got the sense it was a real turning point for the, you know, just assumption that, yeah, we are an exceptional nation. That's when it became clear that our mission in Vietnam was a failure. It seems like our hubris in Vietnam required an assumption of, yeah, we are the best, American exceptionalism. And I wonder if you think it might apply to Iraq and Afghanistan now, where we were told we'd be welcomed as liberators. Your thoughts on this? I would make a distinction, uh, two, actually uh, two separate distinctions between uh, the uh, uh, rationale and also the national mood uh, that led to Vietnam and what happened uh, with Cheney and Bush in Iraq in 2002-2003. Uh, the Vietnam War was fought... Uh, on behalf of an ideology, and the ideology was anti-communism, and it was it was extremely coherent. Uh, it was supposed to apply across the board, and as Johnson and Nixon ended up enforcing it when they pulled the big escalations, and in Nixon's case, all the way to the Christmas bombing of Hanoi and the incursion in Cambodia, this was all done to you know ward off the threat of a communist. Uh, insurgency that might spring up throughout Southeast Asia and make the whole region go communist and thereby threaten American assets in the Philippines, in Japan, in South Korea, and so on. Um, That theory, I think, was proved false, but on the way to trying to back up the theory of anti-communism that had to be pursued worldwide when there was any sort of armed threat, um, we killed between one and three million Vietnamese. We used Agent Orange so extensively that American 
Americans who served there are still suffering from it, and the uh, you know incidence of cancer oh, among the Vietnamese is extraordinarily high. Yeah. And we turned a beautiful uh, forest society into something very different, very much more like our society, but without the permission uh, of the people. Yeah. So the Vietnam War had a coherent ideology behind it. It was it was a negative ideology, anti-communism, more than it was a kind of self-supporting nationalism of our own. Um, but the, de- the destructiveness of that war was unlike anything else the United States has ever done. Uh, whatever we make of the disasters that Bush and Cheney uh, wrought in Iraq, they're nothing like the scale of what happened to Vietnam, the numbers yeah. killed and what was done to the society itself. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the... <laughs> The war in Iraq, the war against Iraq, really was a you know, first glimpse of strutting American exceptionalism. We were going to make a whole new world, that part of the world, safe for democracy and plant democracies in order to support um, our assets there, too. And one shouldn't eliminate from consideration uh, the economic interests that were being served, most of all uh, in the Middle East, because their oil is at stake. And it still is. Um, I mean, President Obama, who's supposed to have turned a page on all this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in his last State of the Union address, boasted of, you know, the United States as, as you know, shooting up in oil production, oil production based on natural gas. Um, but we still care about the other kind of oil production, too. He's opened up the Arctic drilling and yes. offshore drilling to a, to a great extent. Um, and that, you know, for that reason, we knew Iraq was important. Um, so it was a, it was a, 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 Iraq was a much more classically imperialist war than Vietnam. Uh, um, I guess that's what it boils down to that I'm saying. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who was uh, Undersecretary of uh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, was it State of Defense, Defense during the Vietnam uh, during the Iraq War, said in an interview in Vanity Fair, sort of with a smirk. Do you think we'd really be doing this uh, if the country was Bolivia? <laughs> right. Meaning, you know, however communist a country without oil may go, however um, a terrorist, however dangerous we may say it is, if there weren't oil there, we wouldn't care that much. And and you write, uh, if a nation goes does wrong, they say we must treat it as an error and not a crime. And, of course, I think of, of Vietnam. I mean, we have just steadfastly refused to learn any uh, uh, lessons about Vietnam. It seems to me... Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think Reagan is the intervening yes. factor there. I oh, think for sure. uh, the value of Ronald Reagan for inducing amnesia, yeah. even more than Americans ordinarily suffer from it, uh, was enormous, can't be underestimated. And with... Uh, triumph of the Cold War, as it was very broadly proclaimed uh, in 1988, 89, 90, um, thanks to Ronald Reagan, we were told, um, there was a great forgetting of uh, the miscarriages of American power just 20 years earlier. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have to forget Vietnam in order to go into Iraq. Right, right. And if we do wrong, if we make, uh, do bad things that might be seen by some as, as a crime, we have to see them, we have to see them as aberrations that we went yeah, into. just aberrations, just little mistakes. And you'll, right. you'll hear that word used very often by ideologists of empire. Um, I think Robert Kagan, who is one of the biggest of them, um, 
now at the Brookings Institution, but a neoconservative who was a leading propagandist for the Iraq War, you know, had said in a, just a passing note about Vietnam in one of those long articles that review all recent American history in a few pages, mm-hmm. you know, referred to Vietnam as a mistake. He didn't say whose mistake or how it might have been turned right if only the, the certain maneuvers had been done better. And that, of course, was the neoconservative uh, line about Iraq, too. Uh, though Bush was their man, because Cheney was really running things, um, they, uh, in the end, blamed Bush uh, for everything that went wrong in Iraq. And they said, you know, uh, it could have it could have gone so much better if only we hadn't done this little thing wrong and this little thing wrong. Huh. Always forgetting the plain fact that it's not our country. I mean, that sort of stares at you when you look at pictures. We didn't see many pictures because of the right. suppression of media coverage of the Iraq War, all the embedded reporting and so on. Oh. But, you know, look at the pictures of those troops halfway around the world um, and say, what are they doing there? What are we doing there? It's not our country. Right. And there was no sense in which Iraq constituted a danger to the United States. No. And I'm afraid that question still is not being asked. We know, we know now that ISIS or ISIL, the offspring of al-Qaeda, which is even worse, which yeah. has the worst uh, um, uh, conduct of any terrorist sect we've ever seen. Nobody would want to live near them or under them. But we feel we have to fight them rather than just, you know, as John Quincy Adams said, um, be rooting for the people who do fight them. But what are we doing there exactly? These these terrible internecine or mm. religious wars halfway around the world might be left to burn themselves out at whatever cost. Uh, and it's not clear that we're making the cost lower rather than higher. So these questions never get asked. The, the prime question, what are we doing there? And the answer is simple. If you're an empire, you want to be everywhere. An empire has a world foreign policy. That's practically the definition of empire. But if you're not an empire, if you're just a republic wanting to improve your own freedom, you might think about what needs to be done at home, like repairing bridges or having a good train line on the East Coast. Oh, my goodness. How radical. Oh, how radical, taking care of ourselves. And, uh, uh, David Bromwich, you write that uh, y- you talk about a nation as a kind of family. And this, this will get back to Vietnam and things like that. If a family member does something bad— Within the American exceptionalism context, and certainly, you know, there are those who say, say that, uh, you know, we are bringing uh, the, the, the best things and that they're lucky in Iraq to have us there. I think, you know, we're doing just falling right into the hands of ISIS here by, by bombing selectively. I mean, they couldn't have a better recruiting tool. But, but you write that, quote, no matter how vicious and wrong the conduct of a member of the family may be, one must assume his good intentions. In this context, you ask, uh, uh, does a parent ask, is it my duty to conceal what he has done? Is there a chance of keeping it secret? Unquote. This makes me think about Abu Ghraib and the use of torture by this exceptional nation. Can an insistence on American exceptionalism lead to, as you say, an officially sanctioned form of collective dishonesty? Yeah, I think it always leads to that because by definition, Justice means a kind of impartiality. 
Um, justice is not a respecter of persons. That's why she's blind and has the scales in her hands. Uh -huh. Whatever weighs the most or weighs the least is what she's concerned with, not who's best looking or looks like a family member. <laughs> and, um, you know, look at what's happening right now, the extraordinary drawn-out delay by the CIA, abetted by the White House, in releasing the already censored uh, report on torture by the CIA and other American agencies after uh, uh, the bombings of uh, September 11, 2001. We still haven't seen the report. Nothing like a serious inquest to the crimes committed by the nation against ourselves by violating our own laws and our own agreements to treaties um, after 2001. Nothing like that inquest has ever taken place. And why not? Because it, it's all in the family. It has to be protected. And again, not, let's not um, uh, take the merely innocent and sentimental meaning of family and confine this to pure ideology. It also has to do with interests and with power, with the desire for power. Um, you know, uh, gangster families, as they are called, are another kind <laughs> of families. And there are particular interests that are being protected yes. uh, when that torture report is muffled, uh, censored, uh, it's released delayed, and, you know, we don't even know if it will be released under President Obama or ever. We shall see. Yeah. But even, even the enormous pressure from Dianne Feinstein and others in the Senate, the, the thing uh, is, is very hard to have come out, and the reason is that there are interested persons, people in the CIA, people who have been close to it, um, people who are objects of um, understandable fear, to others in the political establishment. And you've know, got to keep it inside so you don't get hurt either. Now, that's, that's the reverse of justice. That has nothing to do with good community feeling. But it's justified under some ideological covering, even in the press, as you know, a kind of self-censorship, a kind of being good to the people close to us, that we had better continue to exercise just if we want to feel like a family. Well, I think the cost is too high. It's a, it's a cost to justice itself. It's a cost to our knowledge of right and wrong. And, and David, I think about uh, you know people we may know who think of themselves as exceptional, think of themselves as above the law. The law doesn't apply to them. It applies to everybody else, but not to them. That doesn't work very well. And, and you talked a bit about fear. There has been a lot of fear. My sense is that there is a strong, palpable fear of not having American exceptionalism. Of not having what? American exceptionalism. That we yeah, not, what if we're not exceptional? Right. It seems that these days there's a desperation to force American exceptionalism. And those who dare to question American exceptionalism are painted as traitors. Speak about this, if you would. How, I, how, how central to our identity has American exceptionalism become? And why is there such attachment to it and fear of well it. yeah it's a very good question and it's not i don't think it's answerable uh by the tools of common sense or science or research for my idea of the country i'd like to live in and what i admire most about america and characters like lincoln and uh martin luther king and whitman and roosevelt yeah uh, and a few others uh and mm. i mean franklin roosevelt yes um <laughs> so. you know uh it, it sh we, shouldn't, we shouldn't want to think of ourselves as exceptional in any way that especially departs from the ideals of universal liberty and equality. And that's not to be made an evangelical subject for export. Um, it's uh, to continue to improving in ourselves 
and, uh, you know, hope for the best from others and help them where we can. But war, um, inflicting deaths on others in the name of our ideals, that can't be one of the means by which we improve our own liberty and equality. <laughs> the old, I mean, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm of the very old school of political thought in this, but the only uh, Hobbes and the rest of them, uh, Kant uh, and others, that the only uh, true justification for war uh, is self-preservation. Sure. Real self-preservation. Your country is really under attack. Right. Not that it's a so-called imminent threat because there's five terrorists hiding out in a mountain village 6,000 miles away, and one of them might someday commit a terrorist act against an American asset. No. That's, you know, to, to start fighting a war over dangers like that is not self-preservation uh, any more than, um, you know, uh, putting poison in the soup of kids I think might be my enemies on the playground is <laughs> a legitimate way of establishing myself as an admirable oh, person on the playground. It's just weird. And it is. Uh, but it's, it's a sort of deformation that happens in collective thinking uniquely. And, um, you know, it needs to be cooled down. There need to be enough politicians willing to talk the common sense of ordinary right and wrong and the prosperity oh. that we would like to have improved in this country. But exceptionalism is so, you know, it's attractive. You know, people seems want to feel exceptional, and you can't yep. dare say, you know, I don't believe in American exceptionalism. Let's get down to reality here, folks, and make some changes. How do you see uh, the, the notion of American exceptionalism uh, and the upcoming 2016 elections? How will it affect the coming election? Yeah, um, and I mean Democrats and Republicans. I mean, if, if I, you know, I, they're both surely invoking it in different ways. The, the yes. Democrats, in the name of uh, expanded rights and equality, and the idea that uh, you know rights for women and for gays are just um, coming to fruition, and the Republicans want to stop it. I suppose in the case of Republicans, the exceptionalism has to do with protection of property, protection of you know, a newfound right called choice in schools and so on. There's a lot of exceptionalism in this new idealization of mm. something called choice, um, a consumer choice, every other kind of choice. But uh, I think, it, it, you know, exceptionalism is uh, a current in ordinary political campaigns at a very uh, uh, diffuse uh, and hard to specify way. This, this is what we're, not, what we're seeing now is not a campaign about American, the American empire abroad, whether you think there should be a war against ISIS or anything like that. Probably the largest single factor in it is that the economy has not risen fast enough uh, after the right. depression or large recession yeah. of 2008. You know, and, and uh, the largest single domestic policy people have in mind when they think about the incumbent president is his health care policy, which has become very controversial, um, and that, that's the specimen of a national policy uh, intended to um, be exemplary for the nation. People don't yet know what they think of it. So as usual, when times are not great and not even good mm -hmm. and not very reassuring, mm -hmm. um, people tend to vote against uh, those who have come to represent the power that be. Well, I always try to end on an optimistic note, and, and, and there's a... Uh, I, I seem constitutionally incapable of doing that. Other people... <laughs> <laughs> well, let me give it a try. There was a, a very thought-provoking conclusion to your article. You said, 
none of us is an exception and no nation is. The sooner we come to live with this truth as a mundane reality without exceptions, the more grateful other nations will be to live in a world that includes us, among others. I wonder if you could paint a picture of what this new context might look like for the American future. Um, I, I would call it, the, it's, the, it's the plainest, driest word imaginable, but I would say it's, it's of coexistence and of, um, uh, let's just say, uh, prosperous and mutually encouraging coexistence uh, with other countries in the world of nations. That has not been how we've been no. taught to picture ourselves in the last few years, from Madeleine Albright saying, yeah. you know, we are the indispensable right. nation, we see farther than others because we are taller and everything that you might remember from Bush and Cheney. But yeah. just to think of ourselves as, um, you know, the best of neighbors, one of the best of neighbors in a world of nations, um, that's good. That makes the world out to be a neighborhood we can contribute to. That, w- that would be nice, and it seems eminently possible, but distant, still distant at this point. Fascinating discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it, uh, David, as well as the listener. If, just wondering, uh, you know, if people are interested in reading more of your work, what uh, website... Uh, there's, there's some things that Tom Dispatch, I wrote pretty regularly against the wars uh, induced by Cheney and Bush in the years 2007 and eight in Huffington Post, a little more wide apart blogs uh, in the following years under Obama. And I have a recent book of essays called Moral Imagination, uh, which goes back into the 19th century and discusses some of the uh, paradoxes we've been going over today. Wow, fascinating. I'll have to look for that. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, I don't know, maybe we can uh, get beyond exceptionalism and, uh, and achieve America somehow. Thanks we can so be much. an exception to exceptionalism. <laughs> I'm all for that. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Thank you. Cigarettes and dishes wagged the pies and walked off to look for America. Kathy, I said, as we boarded a greyhound in Pittsburgh. Chicken seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America Laughing on the bus Playing games with the faces She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy Be careful, his bow tie is really a camera Toss me a cigarette, I think there's one in my raincoat We smoked the last one an hour ago 
so I looked at the scenery She read her magazine And the moon rose over an open field Kathy, I'm lost, I said Though I knew she was sleeping Cause on the New Jersey turnpike They've all come to look for a man 